he's referring to how God deals with mankind. And that is, God deals with mankind through covenants, or contracts, promises. It starts, you know, in Genesis 2. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now God made a covenant with Adam and Eve. And that covenant was followed up later on you know, we had Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then up to the New Covenant. You know, but the covenant with Adam was sort of unique. It was like a probation period for him. So, Adam, you can share in the, in the tree of life you need to tend the garden. You need to be productive. But there are restrictions. You're on probation. If you eat of the forbidden fruit, you would come under the curse. The curse of sin. That would bring death. So the covenant with Adam was a covenant of works. Adam, you do this, I'll do that. You don't follow my rules, you will surely die. Now we know Adam and Eve didn't die immediately. Spiritually, they were altered. Death would come eventually. But we all know the story. They didn't keep their probation. They broke the probation with God. And they were now under the curse of God. But even from that time, God showed his mercy, his good pleasure of taking care of Adam and Eve. He, remember he killed animals? Because they were hiding, saying they were naked. They were aware of their nakedness. They were aware of sin. And God took animals and killed them and used them as coverings. Coverings for their guilt. And as we go through the Bible, we see that picture played out. The sacrifices, the blood poured out for sin, the mercy of God time and time, pointing to Jesus Christ, how God covers their sin out of mercy. Out of mercy. The covenant with Adam, because he was the covenant head of all mankind, was made to all mankind. There was no Jew. There was no God's elected people at that time. 
So God's covenant, the Adamic covenant, was made for Adam and his seed. And in that case, the seed means the collective, all of mankind. It's not the singular. All believers, all mankind are under the covenant. That's how God deals with man. As world history progressed, God initiated more covenants. He chose a man, Abram. Abram wasn't a believer. He came out of pagan life, idolatry. But God chose him. He chose Abraham to make a covenant with Abraham. But we have to remember God's laws are always part of history because death was reigning. Men were guilty of God's laws. They had to understand, and the laws were written on their hearts. But Paul goes back to this covenant with Abraham. And he uses Abraham's covenant, and then he brings it up to how men make covenants. And that they're unchangeable. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with man-made covenants, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. And that's how it is if we have, let's say, like our wills. We have our wills, and it's verified, it's solidified by notaries. Supposedly, it can't be broken. Sometimes it's challenged. The sinfulness of man will try to disrupt and break everything. But idyllically, it is set. It should be set in stone. And in the ancient time, a lot of the things that they did with covenants or contracts were set. Remember, like in the book of Esther, when the king, I forget his name, was it Xerxes? He made a ruling that they could kill the Jews. Then she came and he said, I can't change that rule. It's set in place. But he said, I could make another rule that the Jews can defend themselves. So they would understand what Paul was saying when he was talking about man-made covenants and how they stand. They can't be changed. So what Paul is saying that the Abrahamic covenant is still in place. Because remember these Judaizers were saying that Moses, by the laws of Moses, they wanted to say it was nullified. It wasn't by grace alone or by faith alone. The law was added, so we want to nullify and change that Abrahamic covenant. You know, in Genesis 15 it says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abraham said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Remember, 
Abraham was kind of whining to God or complaining to God that he didn't have an heir. He didn't have a child. What did God say? He said, bring me a heifer of three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. If we jump down to verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kezanites, the Kedmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rapium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. You know, in other places, tells us that and Abraham believed God. He trusted God. And that is the faith of trusting God that mattered. But notice it was a fire pot and a flaming torch that passed between. Abraham, God, put in a deep sleep. Usually when they made a covenant like this, both parties would pass through the animal parts. Which meant they were giving each other an oath. And if we broke the oath, let us be cut apart like these animals. They were swearing to each other to keep the covenant. Here, it is God alone walking between the pieces. So God is saying, I swear on myself that I will keep this covenant with Abraham and his seed. God is swearing on the highest authority. He's saying, if I break this covenant, then I am corrupted. I am not immutable. We know that's not the case. Our God is immutable. He does not change. He does not change. He will not tarnish his reputation. He will not tarnish himself. If God didn't keep the covenant, God would be made out to be a liar. Again, he'd be attacking his own character. It will not happen. That's why these covenants are important to us today. That's why it's important we study them. These are promises of God that are for us. It's by faith that we believe. Again, Paul was reminding these Judaizers that this covenant is a one-sided covenant. God is swearing by himself. 
And for them to say that this changed, or God changed it because of the law of Moses, Paul is saying no. It has not been changed. It tells us, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offspring, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And Paul has taken us now into even deeper waters. Because now when he's talking offspring or seed, he's not using the collective, he's using it as a singular He's pointed to someone in particular. He's pointed to Jesus. The promised seed, the Savior. And what he's saying is that Jesus Christ is tied to all of these covenants. It's all of Christ's works that would happen in the future. But all these covenants are tied to Jesus Christ. And that's why they're so beneficial for all eternity. You know, let's go back to Genesis 3. This is after Adam and Eve sinned. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Again, here we see the singular of offspring. Certainly it is Jesus Christ who crushes the head of the serpent. And the serpent because of sin, our Lord is tortured and bruised. But you see how all of these things are tied to Jesus Christ throughout the whole Scriptures. That's why they're lasting. They do not be, they'll never be broken. These covenants have been in place. They have not been nullified. But the basis of all these covenants is the works of Jesus Christ. His atoning works is why we can receive that blessing by believing and not by works. So what about the law? Why was the law given 430 years later? says, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? Why then the law? 
tells us it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by intermediary. Now that intermediator implies more than one, but God is one. The law was put in because of man's transgressions. Because the heart of man is continually evil. Jeremiah says we can't even know it. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? God had his laws written on our hearts as a witness. Of all men, Paul tells us in Romans that the law is written on the heart as a witness against all men. But what does he say? We suppress it. We put it down. We manipulate it. We're experts at that. Oh, a little lie here won't matter. Well, if I steal this little thing, I got it coming for me. And we can go on and on. We're, we're our worst enemies when it comes to sinning. Even though we have that conscience, the witness against ourselves, we're experts at justifying what we do. However, the law, when we see the law, when we're reminded of God's law, it is another witness against us. And this witness has power. God's word has power greater than our conscience. God says His law, His word will never come back void. So we have that conscience that tells us when it's wrong. It's easier to override that. But when we have people witnessing, telling us of sin, Sin in our lives. And they use God's Word. It's a stronger witness. It's a double witness. It's the second witness against us. And that law was to convict men of their own sinfulness. Another witness. To drive them to know that they need a Savior. And that law has power. The Word of God has power. That's why whenever you bring up sin, even to some people who are, you think are completely evil, when you use God's Word, how much it irritates them. Or in some cases, it will break them. They have God's law written on their hearts, but they may have that so seared that they ignore it. But when the Word of God is used to convict them of sin, there's power in it. And they have to struggle to suppress it more or they lash out. Who are you to judge me? We're not judging anybody. It's God's law and the power of God judging them. 
says, if the law then, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under the law. The law exposes our sin. It exposes that we are under a curse and need of a Savior. And that Savior comes through faith. It never comes to those who think they can work their way to heaven. Remember when I said they, they tip those tracks up and they're climbing them thinking, one more rung, one more rung, and I'll please God. That ladder goes nowhere. They'll never please God. They'll never have that contract of peace with God. Because they're doing it man's way. They're trying to work their way to heaven. They'll know they're under the curse. In Revelation 21.18 it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexual, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. When they hear God's law, they will be convicted of sin. And yes, some can completely sear it, turn themselves over to the leadings of Satan. But that's the purpose of the law. And that law will be a witness against the unbelievers on the final day of judgment. But also the Scriptures tell us of the Savior. In Romans 5.18 it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, first Adam, his sin led to condemnation for us all. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The atoning work of Jesus Christ. For as one, by one man disobedience, and many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The purpose of the law was never to save. The purpose of the law was to point us to the need of a Savior. It says, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's by faith. It's mentioned again in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. 
For as by a man came death, by a man has came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, and also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Christ was the perfect Adam. The first Adam broke the contract. Jesus Christ kept the contract with God. He was perfect. And Paul says all these covenants, all these promises, they point to Jesus Christ. They have not been annulled. Just more information added to convict us of our sins. To convict us that what Christ has done to us matters. It's not what we have done to ourselves, it's what Christ has done to us. He has saved us. Not by any works. So we have to conclude that these covenants have never been annulled. These covenants, these promises that God made are with us to today. But maybe the Judaizers thought this through pretty deeply. What about the Adamic covenant, the covenant of works? Was that annulled? Was the covenant God made with Adam annulled? God would be, wouldn't be immutable then, would he? So I think I can safely say up here, biblically sound, that we're sitting here and we're saved by works. This church is in here because of works. So did Judaizers have it right? Was this Adam's works? Abraham's works? Paul's, Calvin's, Luther's. We're saved by works. I'll give you a hint. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When the soul makes an offering for guilt, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous. For ye shall bear their iniquities. We are saved by works, but it's by works of another. It's not our works. It's by the works of Jesus Christ. And that's what all these covenants point to. That's what all of Scripture points to. The works of Jesus Christ, not our own. And that is why Paul is correcting these Judaizers. He wants them on that right track, being by, pulled by the power of the Holy Spirit toward eternity. Those covenants will never change. We should rejoice in that, that our God is immutable. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, be with us. We know you are when we bow the knee and confess our sins and believe by faith and knowing that that sin only exposes our guilt. The mirror of the law gives us a reflection of who we truly are but also it reflects how perfect you are. Let us always keep that relationship, that covenant, in a proper perspective. In Jesus' name, 